Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. If you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in civil conversation. You'll get more out of it in After the Fact, a podcast from the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trusts. PewTrusts.org backslash After the Fact. On September 16th, 2017, there was a rally on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It was billed as the mother of all rallies, Patriot Unification Gathering, and it was a demonstration in support of American values, culture, tradition, and of course, President Donald Trump. The mother of all rallies was led by a man named Tommy Gunn, who was on the stage, firing up the crowd. All right, so you guys know that the mother of all rallies was to end the political violence. It's about freedom of speech. It's about celebration. And in the middle of that massive crowd, a small group of people were making their way to the stage. They were activists from a group called Black Lives Matter of Greater New York, and they were led by a man named Hawk Newsom. Now, Hawk Newsom's group is not an official chapter of the global organization of Black Lives Matter. It's an unaffiliated group, but they came to counter-demonstrate at the rally. Hawk Newsom's group, dressed in Black Lives Matter t-shirts, made their way through the massive crowd with their fists in the air. Initially, the crowd was hostile. They were calling us names, telling us to leave America. They started approaching us. Things were pretty tense. Uh, I believe we were seconds, maybe minutes away from fighting one another. There were police officers in the middle who knew that they couldn't stop what was about to happen. They were asking us to walk over to the side and you're telling black people to wear, move to the back. That's not going to happen. So here are two sides in America's political culture war that are more opposed than any two sides you can possibly imagine. So, of course, people pulled out their phones and started to record. Now, as I'm watching this video, I'm thinking, this is going to be bad. This could get ugly really fast. I actually started to feel my heart pound because this is what we tend to see over and over again, this kind of confrontation, and it escalates, and it gets worse and worse. How's it going to end? Well, nobody could have predicted what actually happened next. Tommy Gunn, the organizer of the rally, did something completely unexpected. He invited Hawk Newsom onto the stage to speak to this crowd of Trump supporters. So what we are going to do is something you're not used to, and we're going to give you two minutes of our platform to put your message out. Now, whether they disagree or agree with your message is irrelevant. It's the fact that you have the right to have the message. And Hawk Newsom accepted his offer. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. My name is Hawk Newsom. I am the president of Black Lives Matter New York. 
What happened after that was astonishing to everyone, including to Hawk Newsom himself. When I came off of the stage, I was in shock. I didn't know what happened. There were people who I was prepared to hit before that were now shaking my hand and some of them asking me to hold their children. This is the Arthur Brooks Show. Welcome, thanks for listening. I'm the president of the American Enterprise Institute and this is a show I'm making with the Vox Media Podcast Network. This show is about disagreement. Now, you probably think you know everything about disagreement. Just turn on the television. That's all you'll hear. This show is different. This show is about how it's okay to disagree as long as we're not disagreeable. See, what's wrong in America today is not that we disagree, it's that we don't know how to disagree well. This show is supposed to tell us how to do it better. In this episode, we're gonna look at what happens when you share your stage with your opponent, with someone who's ideologically opposed to you. We'll get back to Hawk Newsom in a second, but we'll also hear from John Powell, a man I've shared the stage with myself and who's thought a lot about how we can find common ground. So back to the mother of all rallies. Tommy Gunn had just invited Hawk Newsom up on the stage at the pro-Trump rally. Hawk Newsom had just accepted the invitation. Somebody shouts out from the audience, all lives matter. Hawk Newsom responds, You're right, my brother. You're right. You are so right. All lives matter, right? Right? But when a black life is lost, we get no justice. That's why we say black lives matter. Listen, listen, if we really want to make America great, we do it together. That's when people stopped shouting and started cheering. He was only up on the stage for a few minutes, but when he came down, Hawk Newsom told me he couldn't quite believe what was happening. I wrote about this act of sharing your stage, literally in this case, in an opinion piece for the New York Times called Empathize With Your Political Foe. We reached out to Tommy Gunn. We asked him to come on the show and tell his story, but he declined to do the interview. Hawk Newsom, though, did come to talk to me after that was published. Welcome, Hawk Newsom. Hey, thanks for having me out there. So you're the president of Black Lives Matter Greater New York. And, you know, on its face, it sounds just super revolutionary, super militant. For people who don't know anything about it, it may be scary. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, look, you're six foot five. <laughs> you're 275. Wearing, and, and, you're just, and you're just like decked out head to toe in Black Lives Matter gear. And you show up at the at the mall in Washington, D.C. And a mother of all Trump rallies. Like, I mean, this is this is going to go up in flames. I'm just, you know, I'm looking at this video going, this can't be good. Absolutely. Tell me what happened. We walked up. People started calling us names, right? Right. They started antagonizing us. Go home. They started booing us. And as we came to a point which was near the stage, and we stood there in a very militant way with our fist up, folks started coming toward us. And then the police stepped in between us and and those people. I was like, these people here are in favor of oppression. They are my enemy. So, okay, so the, the, the cops are freaking out. You're, mm-hmm. like, pumped and ready to fight. And, yeah. and, and then, then what happened? So a voice said, do you want to go on stage? And then the announcement came over the, the microphone. 
you want to go off stage, go on stage. And it wasn't like a verbal agreement. I just looked at my team and they were like, yeah. And so who was saying this? Who was saying, come up on stage? The guy who drives around in that big Trump tractor trailer. Uh-huh. So you this know? is a guy named Tommy Gunn, who was the organizer of the Trump rally, right? Yeah. No. Tommy had spoken to somebody on the oh, team. Oh, I see. So there was like a meeting. First they were saying, ignore them. They are nothing. They don't exist. Saying that to black yeah, people that's, in America is that's problematic. I mean, because right? and again, we're trying to erase each other's dignity. The best mm-hmm. way to erase somebody else's dignity is saying they don't exist. Yeah. So okay. So then it, but it switches. Mm-hmm. They have some sort of a meeting. They're like, let's invite them up. Yeah. And then Tommy says it from the stage, and we agree that we should go up. And my initial thought was, they need to hear how we feel. And then it was like this moment between where we were and walking up to the stage where God said, make them understand who you are. And we went up on stage and and, and initially there was a, a, a guy on stage who said, y'all stand up, line up here with your fist up. And I looked at him like, who said that? Somebody uh, from the Trump was, rally? It was, or? it was a black guy. A black was, guy. <laughs> who's getting you to go? Yeah, <laughs> and, and he's like just standing up, looking at him like, you know, who do you think you're talking to? You know. But he was on the other side. Yeah, he was on. Oh, it was an African American guy on the other side who yeah. was telling you to look more militant than you even were trying to be. Exactly, and uh-huh. and he was like, y'all just going to stand it, and I, we're not. We're not props. You know, yeah. we're 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 people who are on a journey toward a more peaceful and just society. So what he was doing was further diminishing who we were. And he said something like, if you don't like it, you can get off stage. So my team started walking off the stage. And I said, I'm not leaving this stage until I say what I want to say. At this time, Tommy didn't know what was going on. And he was like, no, they're going to speak. And then he grabbed the microphone. What'd you say? That's it. <laughs> I agreed completely. Yeah, right. This is This is what this country is about, right? Like, well, this is what we aim to be upholding, uplifting the Constitution, equal rights. So, yes, I have a right to free speech. I have a right to be heard. Give me the microphone. <laughs> but at but just before that, like, I, I promise, I don't want to glamorize this, but I'm telling you God's honest truth. It's like God spoke to me in that moment, and he said, make them understand who you are. Make them understand what this movement is about. My intention was to go up on stage and tell them how, you know, just berate and belittle them. But that wasn't God's plan for the day. He said, make them understand who you are. I am an American. And the beauty of America is that when you see something broke in your country, you can mobilize to fix it. When I said I'm an American, they cheered, like, as if that was the most shocking thing they'd ever heard. People have to understand that that black folks love America. We are patriotic, but it's kind of like an abusive relationship. You know what I mean? Where you love that, <laughs> that which, which, which abuses you. But um, make no mistake about it, we love this country. And um, we just don't like some of its practices. And this is why me personally and a few others that I work with, a lot of people around the country, including a lot of white folks, right, are working to fix 
this is what it is. Like, so, so here's the principle. It's really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got up there and people were expecting you to denounce them, to insult them, to put space between you and them, but mm -hmm. you didn't, you closed the space. You, you embraced that crowd. Why? By saying what you had in common with them. These people are, they're flags all over this rally. These are Americans who, who, who really do love their country in their way. And you got up there and the first thing that you said is, you know what? I'm one of you. Yeah. So in other words, this was unity. Yeah. This was raw unity. That's what And that was. was the most unexpected thing of all, right? Yeah. So what happened next? Common ground is the key to us moving forward as a nation. Right, mm -hmm. finding common ground, finding what we agree on, and mobilizing behind it. That's the way that we rejuvenate this country. We breathe life back into this country and heal that divide. So when I said I'm an American and people cheered, it was like, yes, okay, now they're listening. Right. Right. And that's when I introduced Eric Garner. Eric Garner was choked to death by police officers. He was selling single cigarettes in Staten Island. Mm -hmm. uh, on the street, and yeah. this, and he was killed in 2016. Yeah, yeah, and it, it ignited an, a massive movement in New York City and around the world. And this is what you were addressing. So, what'd you say about Eric Garner? So, I said that there's no way that we can watch a man be choked to death as he screamed for his life 11 times and not bring justice to that situation. So now pretend I'm in the audience, right? Okay. And and I've never seen a Black Lives Matter guy in real life, or if mm -hmm. I have, it's just been really bitter and angry. And 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 people are starting to cheer for you because you're saying I'm an American. And and by the way, you also said I'm a Christian. A Christian. And you said the great thing about America is when something's broken, you can fix it, which is a very affirming. You you're 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 bringing them closer. You're dragging them in, right? And so somebody shouts, mm -hmm. "All lives matter." What does that mean? First of all, that's a very offensive term. Like, when people say that, it's usually not to tell you that all lives matter. It's kind of to take a shot at you. And what we say is all lives will matter when black lives matter, right? When injustices occur to white people, they get justice. But when they occur to black and brown people, we don't receive justice. So how could you say in your heart that all lives matter? When it's not a true statement, at least that's not what you're what you're seeing. That's not what's being displayed here in this country. Now, I love all people, and I hope that the people who make that statement love all people. But generally, the people who say all lives matter don't really express a concern for the well-being and the injustices that African Americans encounter. So That's why it's so disingenuous. It it's is. the disingenuousness that bothers you. Okay, but but now let's go back to Hawk News. So mm -hmm. the uniter, because Amen. you just told me that you hear all lives matter and you're on alert, you're on high alert for disingenuousness, but that's not what you, you took it on its face. Because let me yeah. quote you, Hawk. You said, it's like a guy shouts, all lives matter. Mm-hmm. Your response, you're right, my brother, you're right. In other words, you accepted it as, it, it, as if it were completely genuine mm -hmm. because you're uniting. Sometimes you have to meet people where they are. It's important that we, as people who seek to unite, meet people where they are. They're not privileged to the information that we're privileged to. Some of them are just are not privileged to the, they don't possess the love that we have. So we have to meet them where they are. Yes, all lives do matter in theory, mm -hmm. but not in practice. I know 
that all lives matter to me and the folks in Black Lives Matter, Greater New York, but do they really matter to you? And people, people loved it. They, um, more importantly, they opened their minds. I'm not saying that that, that we've become best friends or, or they are pro-BLM or pro-anything, but at least— I'm going to assume you don't listen. all agree on Trump with those yeah. guys, right? No. Not but that's not the point, is it? No, not at all. I mean, this is a country of disagreement. That's it. That's what it's about. Like, we're people. We're people yeah. who have a lot more in common than we think. You flip the script in a big way, and, mm-hmm. and, and you turned enemies into friends. Right on. So tell me what the friendship looked like at that rally after you finished. Oh, man. It was, um, it was shocking. Like, I had no idea. The same people who were booing me were coming up hugging me. The same people who I wanted to hit, right? I was now <laughs> holding their children. Really? Like, what you do know, you taking pictures with their children. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, when you hold my kid and I can take a picture? Yeah, it was like, I want you to meet my son. Another uh, fellow that was in the militia said, you know, I always thought that I agreed with you, but this confirmed it. And... This type of progress can only be made through love. If I would have went up there without love, minds wouldn't have been open. And that video that now this or or the the footage has been seen over 50 million times. It's almost as if there's a hunger for this out there, right? Yeah. People want, I mean, they're getting disunity, but they want unity, right? Absolutely. So what happened afterward? Did you maintain relationships with some of these Trump rally organizers to some of the people you met that day who you ordinarily wouldn't have met? You know what's funny? There are a few on my Facebook page, and we argue. Right. Sometimes we agree. Most of the time we don't. But in the end, it's like, I get where you're coming from. And and folks are agreeing on a lot on a lot of serious issues, and, 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 and they're, they're seeing light in places they only saw darkness before. I've looked at your Facebook page, and what's really encouraging to me, actually, isn't even the way that they agree. It's mm. the way that they disagree. Tell me about how you have brought people together through better disagreement. It's more respectful. Folks initially would curse at one another, call each other names, but now there's a completely different element. Of course, you have trolls sometimes, but it's respectful and it's genuine. It's it's like, okay, show me facts, right? Hmm. It's not like, this makes no sense. I'll never agree on it right now. It's like, show me facts. And the facts are presented and people will agree or respectfully disagree. Hmm. There's no way that the folks at that rally will agree with everything that I have to say. I don't expect them to agree with most of the things that I say. But when they see something, when they hear something that resonates with them and they acknowledge it, I say, share share this opinion with your followers. And it happens. Tell me what happened in the Black Lives Matter movement when this video went viral. I was vilified without going into details and going into the weeds on it, I was vilified. The black public, the black voters, the black parents and the black folks, you know, business people or, you know, working class folks, 
They loved it. They still come up and approach me on a train and say, hey, brother, that's the way to do it. But the more radical people are like, no, no, no platform for fascists. There's no way that you should speak to those people. You compromise the movement. You're a sellout. But I met with the Black Lives Matter Global Network after and expressed where we were coming from. And we didn't become a member of the global network, but there was a mutual respect. I respect everything. I, I, I have an immense amount of respect for the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement and their global network. And I appreciate the path that they're on, but I'm on another path. We reached out to Black Lives Matter Global Network about this episode, and they sent us a statement that said that Hawk Newsom and the group known as Black Lives Matter of Greater New York are not associated with a global network. If you want to see their full statement, go to the show notes. We're going to take a quick break. More on sharing your stage when we're back. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smart Water Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. When we discuss these ideas, ideas like finding common moral ends, bridging big ideological divides, sharing a platform with political opponents, stuff like that, it tends to feel a little bit theoretical or distant, kind of abstract, not very practical. I want to make this more practical now, more concrete. And the way I'm going to do that is by telling you how I've done it in my own life. I want to tell you about somebody with whom I've personally shared a stage, somebody with whom I don't have very much in common politically, but who's become a friend and a collaborator. How's your family? They're doing well. They're doing well. Is your, your dad's 94, you said? 97. 97. Uh, you remember that old joke, how do you live to be 100? No. Get to 99 and be careful? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll tell him that. John Powell is a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley. He's also a professor of African American Studies and Ethnic Studies and the executive director of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. Funny story. I had a student, a conservative student in my class, and he, he came up to me and he said, Professor Powell, I'm going to leave your class because... I don't know if I can get a fair shake here. I said, well, why do you think that? He said, well, uh, most of the students in the class are liberal, and you're liberal, and I'm a Christian conservative, so I don't know if I really fit in this class. And I said, I'm not liberal. I said, you're not? I said, no. He said, I thought you were. I said, no, I'm not liberal. He stayed in the class. None of us really like to be categorized a box, even though we those categories are important. I'm probably what, what people call progressive, um, but not doctrinaire. On its face, it might seem like John Powell and I don't have very much in common. He describes himself as a man of the left, as a progressive. I'm not those things. My politics are center-right. But here's what we have in common. We're both deeply interested in how we pull people from the margins of society, how we lift people up who are on the periphery. I do think that, for me, systems should be structured to serve people in life that we should organize our systems and structures in the service of people and all people. And I also believe we're deeply connected. Why do people think it's so remarkable that John Powell and Arthur Brooks are friends and have real affection for each other? What's going on with that? Why, why is that so weird? 
I think we're in a strange place in our country and in the world. You know, I think people are not only not building bridges anymore, I think they're blowing them up and then taking hard stances. Uh, So I think you see a proliferation of extreme polarization uh, across the political spectrum, the religious spectrum, and it almost becomes a stance, you know, your the way you sort of bonifies your credentials. You know, obviously there's a lot of hard stuff going on, a lot of important stuff, but people don't believe you can approach it with a seriousness and an open heart at the same time. John and I have collaborated as members of a project called the U.S. Partnership on Mobility from Poverty. We've spoken together at events. We've even written together. And central to understanding how we connect with each other is a concept John calls othering. I think it's actually more and more important as the world becomes smaller and smaller. Think about the world growing up, humanity growing up. We had our little tribes. We had, you know, people didn't travel very far. A couple of hundred years ago, to, to travel 100 miles or 200 miles was a big deal. So you actually had a very small number of people. And so you could believe whatever you believed, and everybody you knew basically believed the same thing. And now we're sort of bumping into each other, whether we're in Afghanistan or China or Africa or Latin America or the United States. And we find out, We have different perspectives, different cultures, and the perception is the other person's wrong. And even when we first started bumping into each other, certainly in terms of the West, it was often in terms of colonialism. So it's like, oh, we met some savages today. (laughs) You know, that's that's not a very good way to bridge, to walk up to someone and say, how are you doing, savage? You know, let me teach you. Let me change your religion. Put some clothes on or put some different clothes on. So I think we're a place now in the world where this is not a luxury. If we don't get it right, we don't get it at all. We don't keep the world. We can't keep the world just for my tribe. Uh, We have to share the world uh, with everyone and with the world itself. You and I wrote a piece together about how we other the poor. Can Can you describe that? Yes, I think, you know, basically, and this is not just analytics, this is actually empirical, poverty in its extreme sense means not affording someone full human dignity. And now, consciously, we'll say, of course, I respect that person's humanity. But even calling them the poor, right? It's like if we say the blacks, that that immediately sticks in people's, you know, it's like, what? What do you mean the blacks? And then it's like, what do we do for them, right? Not that there are no them, they're us. Some of us may be on harder times than others, but the claim for being part of humanity, to having a stake, and not necessarily having the material, or even the intellectual resources to fully participate them. How do we change that? How do we hold on to that, those, that humanity? As long as you think of people as other, even at an unconscious level, it means you're not going to fully afford them. And what people need in some respects, as much if not more than just in the United States, by uh, you know another dollar bill, is they need respect. And I'll, I'll tell you a very quick story. I, I lived in San Francisco, now I live in Berkeley. There were a number of people who were without housing. We referred to them as homeless. And I got to know some of them. And there was a woman that I'd give money to, and I'd talk to, uh, I'd call her Sally, and she would talk to me. Um, and I said, how are you doing? She said, do you have anything for me today? And I'd give her, you know, some money. One day I get back from traveling overseas, and I see someone, see a woman I know, and I give her a big hug, and we're talking and chatting each other up. And then I see Sally. And I said, hi, Sally. And she's sort of being particularly sheepish or something. And she's not quite looking at me. And I said, do you need money? And she said, I wonder if you could give me a hug. And I hesitated. She was disheveled to camp. I had visions of her having lice. And I hesitated. But what she was saying is that I need more than your money. I need to be 
human. I need to be recognized for my humanity. I need to be hugged. Uh, and I did. I hugged her, but not without some hesitation. Uh, and some of my friends then teased me. They said, oh, you got your homeless girlfriend. And it was sad and it was beautiful all at the same time. But it, but it also taught me something about myself, you know, that in a sense it was easier to give her money than to hug her. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I, next time I see you in person, we're going give, to give each other a hug without even thinking about it. Exactly, exactly. John Powell talks about three ways of connecting or disconnecting from other people. Bridging, bonding, and breaking. When by ending the system of white minority domination, humanity will have ensured that never again shall the scourge of racial tyranny raise its ugly head. You know this voice, and it won't surprise you that Nelson Mandela was a great example of bridging. He learned to speak Afrikaner. He learned to speak the language of the people who were killing blacks in South Africa. Their language is part of their sacred symbol. And when he met with the general from the African army, who was very much opposed to peace, the whole conversation took place in Afrikaner. That's an amazing thing. That's like bridging on steroids, right? I mean, it's like really wonderful, powerful example of bridging, uh, of reaching across, of acknowledging someone, not saying, I accept apartheid, but I accept your humanity. John, sometimes when we talk about bridging and, and othering, I think that it's less a problem with individuals and their biases and prejudices. I think it has a lot more to do with the, the pressure that comes from their communities. I think that you know, when, you, when you see conservative activists, they might be even a little bit embarrassed to be <laughs> suggesting that people who have a progressive point of view might be right on something. And, and, and sometimes when we're on college campuses, you see that there's pressure for people to toe the line on, on very, very orthodox progressive viewpoints and, and indeed to, to vilify people who have a conservative point of view. I, I see it in both communities. Do you think that's the case, that we have a problem with our communities when we might want a bridge that's creating a, a pressure to break? I think absolutely. I mean, and we have historical examples of that and contemporary examples of it. Sometimes there's a cost associated with bridging, uh, and sometimes the cost can be quite high. And we, we've seen, for example, there was uh, some early peace efforts between Palestinians and Jews, and when they went back to their respective communities, it was like, you, you said what? You did what? <laughs> with whom? And the Tutsis and Hutus in, in uh, Rwanda, people who refused to kill the others, many of them were killed themselves. So if you're not going to kill the other, and people said there's no other, their own group would turn on them and kill them. My friend and, and teacher, Bell Hooks, used to say that uh, bridges are walked on. And so when you become a bridge, you oftentimes get walked on. And as I said to a, another friend recently, it's one thing to be walked on. It's quite something else to be stomped on. And so sometimes a group to demand breaking behavior will actually attack their own members. And belonging matters. And so when we are guarded or attacked uh, by our own group, it creates a hard thing. And so bridging is not a small thing. It's, and, and there have been examples, um, which I've actually been part of lately, where people attack someone as a group, and then individuals will come back to the person and say, are you all right? But they would never say it in the group. So bridging, bridging takes courage, doesn't it? It does take courage. I was talking to a minister, a friend of mine here in the Bay Area, about bridging, and he said, you know, do I have to bridge with the devil? 
And I said, well, why don't you start with other people? <laughs> you don't have to start there. There's a, there's a long line of people and entities you might engage before you get to the devil. And what he was really saying that there are certain people who are so negative to my beings. Some people, some people who hate me so much, do I have to bridge with them? And I'm saying, don't start there. Don't start with the hardest situation. Uh, you know, work that muscle a little bit. And yeah, there may be some people who will say, you know, I can't build an entire bridge by myself. I can reach out to you, Arthur, but it only works if you reach back. And uh, Dr. King had this idea that you could leave the door open, but you don't have to necessarily go look for people. And so it's like, there's an open door. I'm, I'm willing to bridge. And it doesn't mean that I necessarily agree with the person I'm bridging with or that I'm giving up my sense of self or my values, but it means I'm recognizing their humanity. It doesn't guarantee a victory, hmm. uh, but it does enhance the possibility of humanity. When somebody is bridging outside their group, they'll sometimes be accused of having sort of Stockholm syndrome, mm -hmm. that they're going native in a certain way and that they lack spine. But you're saying just the opposite. That's exactly right. A lot of times when we break, we're actually mimicking the group we're breaking from. So it's like, okay, there are white people who hate black people. Okay, we're going to have some black people who are going to hate white people. Now, how, how is that different than what, I mean, and it's not symmetrical. But there, there's some deep similarity. Uh, so, uh, and part of it's coming out of anger. And I'm not saying people shouldn't defend themselves. I'm not saying people shouldn't exist in the world. But we're not trying to invert it. And so breaking oftentimes is a thing of, it's our turn to dominate. And what we're really talking about is not having domination. Let's talk about breaking. You don't have to look very hard to find examples of breaking today. It's all around us. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. You know, to just be grossly generalistic, you could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. <laughs> Can you tell me more about breaking? Breaking is associated with Robert Putnam, although he uses it slightly different, but it's very similar to how I use it. Breaking is actually affirmatively attacking the other. And, and to some extent, as we break in a serious way, we actually define ourselves by our breaking. And so I define myself by the groups I hate. I'm not indifferent to them. The, the examples of this, Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey was very much into black culture, African culture. And he said, okay, you don't want us here, white people? We'll leave. He collected money. It was going to take a bunch of African-Americans back to Africa. And they locked him up. And the obvious thing is like, well, this is a guy you don't like. He's, he's a you know, black nationalist. He doesn't like you. He wants to leave. And the powers that be said, no, you can't leave. In a sense, we need you here. We need somebody here to hate. You define us. Uh, by your presence. And so I think breaking, in a strong sense, is where we attack the other, we deny the other, and to some extent, we use the other to define who we are. And I think what's happening in the country now uh, is not only too little bridging, but a whole lot of breaking. And it takes on not just ideological form, it takes on physical forms. So you think of, in a sense, jails. You think of segregated schools, segregated neighborhoods. You think of building walls. Those are all physical expressions of breaking, of saying, these people are so despicable. If we can't 
kill them. We can't dominate them. Can we at least control them? Can we consign them someplace? I use the example in our culture and history when we talk about the one-drop rule. So historically, the idea was that one drop of black blood would destroy whiteness, which is an amazing concept, because actually there's no such thing as black blood. But the concept that somehow blackness was so powerful and whiteness was so fragile that even a small contact would be the destruction of whiteness. Actually, that's not a concept being revisited today when people in Poland talk about a white-only society, um, a white, pure society. There's no such thing as purity. And if you believe in purity, you're going to constantly be broiling and anger and anxious and always under threat. But that's the situation we're in right now. And there's the flip side. You know, there's there black people are, you know, and it's not symmetrical. But when people claim themselves in opposition to another group, and the other group is the categorical evil, the devil, there's some black teachers who would say white people were created by the devil. I mean, that's serious breaking. You're not only saying I don't like them. You're saying they're ultimately evil. Once you go down that road, you're not a long way from doing all kinds of terrible things to each other. Our team at AEI is Cece Galligly and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, our producer is Gautam Shrikashan, who also composed our theme music. Golda Arthur is senior producer, and Nishat Kurwa is executive producer of audio. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Tell someone you know about this podcast and leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear your stories of breaking, bonding, and bridging. How hard was it to share your stage with someone else? Was it worth it? Email us at arthurbrookshow at voxmedia.com. Or you can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Arthur Brooks. Thanks for listening. For 70 years, the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trusts has researched the data and the facts that promote civil conversation and lead to innovative policy solutions. Now, it's providing some of that civil dialogue in a podcast called After the Fact. In each episode, Pew shares a surprising stat and a story that help illuminate issues that matter. Listen at pewtrust.org slash after the fact or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your favorite programs. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.